0: Uh, you know, Amy and I do our best uh, to be good parents, uh, which means that we spend some weekend evenings exposing our children to movies from the 80s and 90s. Um, so we wanna make sure that our kids growing up with a good cinematic uh, intelligence, and so we show them movies like Home Alone, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, and more, more recently, The Karate Kid. So uh, obviously we're doing very well in the parenting department. Uh, you know the story of Karate Kid, don't you? Uh, it's a single mom and her son. Uh, they, they move to a small apartment in California. Life is always hard when adjustments like that are being made, uh, but certainly to make matters worse, uh, Daniel, the son, starts getting picked on uh, and bullied from a group uh, that happened to be part of the same karate club. At one point when the boys are being particularly rough with Daniel, a small old Japanese man shows up and opens up a can, uh, if you know what I mean. So impressed by this, Daniel decides that he wants to be able to defend himself. So he, sa- he decides he's going to take karate lessons from this Mr. Miyagi. Uh, so he shows up uh, early the next morning uh, to learn karate, and Mr. Miyagi famously tells him to wax his car. Uh, but he has to wax it in a particular way. He has to do wax on, wax off. So he does that, not just on one car, but a whole fleet of cars. It takes him all day. Uh, The next morning, Daniel shows up, and Mr. Miyagi this time tells Daniel to paint the fence. But he has to paint the fence in a very particular way. He has to paint the fence up, down, right? You remember? Up, down. So he paints the fence, all of the fence, both both sides, (laughs) right? Right? Uh, this is all like so fresh after having watched it. Uh, and, and then the third day, he, Daniel shows up again and expecting to learn karate, but Mr. Miyagi tells him that he this time needs to sand the deck, right? But he has to sand the deck in a particular way. So after three long days of manual labor, Daniel is ready to call it quits. Uh, he thought he was gonna learn karate when all he's done is hard labor for Mr. Miyagi. And so in a pivotal scene, Daniel learns that actually there was a purpose to all that he had been doing up to that point, let's show that scene right now.
1: Sand of sand of big sucker, sand of sand of Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off, hey. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Concentrate. Look my eye. a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Sh- show me paint Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Other side. Look, eye. Always look, eye. Show me paint the house. Side, side. Lock list. Side, side. Side, side. side. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes. 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 Show me pent of fens. Yes. 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 Show me side of side. Yes. 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 Show me sand of floor. Yes. Yes.
0: I'm sure that all of you are inspired to go and watch it now. Now it turns out that Daniel had actually been learning karate even though he didn't know it that he had muscle memory that was shaping him into the Karate Kid. He had made progress that he didn't even realize. Now, we talked last week in our series about embracing exile that we need to tell our story. Uh, that is, that in exile, it's easy to lose our sense of identity as a unique people of God in the world, and, but having a story that helps root us can also solidify our identity. And so we ended with an encouragement to go and live out this, this uniquely Christian story in the world. But here's the thing, in order to do that, we are going to have to practice. Uh, that is to say that we need a set of practices that will actually help us in living out the story, not just to tell it, uh, because we can, we can be fluent in the language of the story and not actually live it. Are you with me? We can be fluent in the language of the story, but not actually live it. Perhaps you've heard the story of the ducks. Uh, You know, every week, duck families would get dressed up and waddle their way to duck church. Waddle, 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 they would go. While they were at church, the duck preacher gets out his duck Bible and proclaims to the crowd of waddling ducks, Ducks are meant to fly. Our true identity is to live as those who can fly. And the ducks quack their loud amens, and then after church, they all waddle home. Sometimes it feels like we aren't that much different than the ducks, that there seems to be a gap between who we say we are as Christians and what we do, and I submit to you today that part of the reason for the disconnect is because what we do, that is our habits, are actually shaping our hearts. I hope you hear me today. that what, the, the habits that we participate in are actually shaping our hearts in a particular way. And so part of the reason that we can't seem to live up to our calling as God's people is because we participate in actions and habits that are forming our hearts in a particular way. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the not so good. There's an author, James K.A. Smith. He's done some really helpful and important work uh, in this area. And in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, and also he has a popular level book called You Are What You Love, he talks about cultural liturgies. Now, liturgy is a word that uh, may sound a little bit unfamiliar, but it is essentially this: liturgy is a form of worship. Now, it literally means the work of the people. Uh, but liturgy is, used, as a, is a word used to describe the form of worship that we participate in. So we're most, hearing, we're most used to hearing the word in reference to the order of service uh, in a church. As in, that liturgy was really on fire. Something I'm sure that all of you have said. <laughs> right? <laughs> but what Smith argues is that actually we participate in liturgies every day. Uh, and he calls these cultural liturgies, and that these liturgies are shaping us to become a particular kind of people. And and what his work is helping us do is actually just become aware of the liturgies that we're participating in and how they are shaping us. Uh, So, for for example, he talks about the mall uh, and going to the mall as a liturgy and the mall as a place of worship. Uh, And it might look something like this, that as you enter the mall, you notice that the colors change with the seasons, Uh, and that upon entering the front doors, you find uh, the the space is filled with little chapels, and in each chapel has a window, and in the window is a 3D icon that shows you a picture of the good life, and we are lured in, and then once in, we are presented with all kinds of options for the good life that we seek. Now, once we have picked something out, we take it to the altar where we meet with the priest and an exchange is made. The elements are then wrapped in a package that clearly identifies to others which chapel you have been to. And then finally, you are given a benediction to come and shop again. <laughs> now, that's just one example that Smith points out, that when we go to the mall, we are being formed and shaped in a particular way, that there are all sorts of, of, of habits and things that are surrounding us that are meant to form you and shape you into a particular kind of person. It's meant to aim your desire. It's meant to shape your picture of the good life. And so we simply just need to recognize that liturgies aim our hearts in particular directions and the mall is, is literally the training ground on how to become a consumer. I want you to recognize that. Uh, that the mall is not neutral ground. There's, pro- there's probably no neutral ground. Everything is trying to shape us and form us in some way. And what the mall is trying to do is form us and shape us into a consumer. So just like Daniel who thought he was just waxing cars when actually he was learning karate, you thought you were just going to the mall when in fact you were being trained to be a savvy consumer. What I want to show you this morning is that just like Daniel who thought he was just waxing a car when he was actually learning karate, is that there are sets of practices that we can participate in that help form us and shape us as the people of God. Because we don't just need a story, we need a set of practices that will help us live out that story. Now, in case you think I've just gone completely off the rails, uh, then let's look at Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 15. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through verse 23, says this. "Uh, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. For don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as, as slaves, that you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now I will put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, But just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time? Though, Though Now the things that you are ashamed of, those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Many of us have been well-trained that our salvation comes by grace, through faith, and not by works, so that no one can boast. Uh, this passage that I've just quoted out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, has, so solidi- has been so solidified in our minds that we face a real temptation to put faith and practices or works at odds with one another. I want to say that again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 has been so solidified in our minds that we face a real temptation to put faith and practices at odds with one another. Uh, we re- we've really come to understand that faith is belief in that which is true. And too often this means that you believe how I believe. And if you don't believe how I believe, then clearly you don't have any faith. <laughs> right? We've come to understand faith purely in forms of belief, belief in what, what, that which is true. And then when it comes to practices, we've understood that as just works righteousness. <laughs> and so we've kind of largely written it off, right? Right? At least in the evangelical tradition, there has been a real aversion to spiritual disciplines or a gospel with social implications. And so largely speaking, our tradition has so overemphasized faith that the grid through which we ver- view the world is right belief, which as I've already said, is often interpreted as belief like I do. And that is, in, in, that is to be faithful is simply To believe the right thing. But what I want to try to help us understand this morning is that we cannot think or believe our way to holiness. We cannot think. We cannot simply think, nor can we simply believe our way into holiness. Holiness takes practice. Or if you notice in your bulletin, Two things. It says holiness takes practices. There's a parenthetical S. And also the scripture is wrong since I failed to update it. It's last week's scripture. <laughs> so, don't, so look at your bulletin, but not too closely. <laughs> I, I would argue that the, the, both the Apostle Paul and Jesus actually know nothing of a kind of faith that is only right belief. Uh, that, that in other words, what, Paul, what the Apostle Paul and what Jesus are trying to do is, is not just think in the right way, but actually to act in the right way, to allow our faith to inform our practices. In fact, a key part of Paul's argument in this passage is this. In your old life, in your old creation life, you would wake up in the morning and present your bodies to sin. And, and the word present here in the Greek is, uh, it has ongoing consequences. So it's not just one time I did that, I presented, but it's I present and keep on presenting. And so Paul's argument is essentially this, in your old creation life, you would wake up every morning and then present and keep on presenting your bodies to sin, through greed, through lust, through selfishness, through all these kinds of things, these practices, and by participating in these practices, you are presenting yourself to sin, and he wants to make it very clear, this leads to death. Paul's alternative reality then, what he's inviting us into, what he's calling us into, is he's saying, now that you have received a new creation life in Christ, then present and keep on presenting your bodies as instruments of righteousness, which will then lead to life and freedom. Now some some translations say that as we present our bodies to righteousness, it will lead to, some translations, holiness Other translations, sanctification. (laughs) That, That the way to get to holiness, the way to get to living as the unique people of God in the world is not just through thinking, is not just through believing, but is in presenting and keep on presenting ourselves to righteousness. Are you with me? Uh, but, but, but when we, when we create this, this false dichotomy between faith and practices or faith and works, and we make them enemies of one another, then we lose all, we, we overemphasize right belief and underemphasize how we are to live. And actually what Paul implies in Romans 6, he makes explicit in Romans 12, when he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. In fact, if you were to read Romans and just highlight or circle, any time Paul talks about presenting or offering ourselves to God, this is a recurring theme over and over and over and over again. But again, it's like, what does it look like to present ourselves to God? God. And certainly part of it is a posture of our heart. Certainly part of it is a belief in God. But also a big part of it is by what we practice, by what we do. Because, in other words, Paul is deeply concerned with what we do with our bodies. And again, the author James K.A. Smith says this. He says, liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. And so, so James K.A. Smith's argument is essentially that if we want our hearts to change, if we want our hearts to be formed as the people of God, if we want our hearts to truly desire what God desires, if we want our hearts to desire the kingdom of God over and above all else, then we need to participate in practices that will aim our hearts that direction by what we do in our bodies that there is no such thing as a disembodied gospel. You with me? And this is really, really, really important to help us understand that the way to train ourselves in new creation life is to participate in Christian practices. I'd be willing to bet that you know Christians who have all the right language, who have all the right doctrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They have all the right everything, But their practices of life are leading to death and are ruled by fear. Right? I'd be willing to bet that you know folks who have all the language, uh, who have all the right doctrines, could answer any kind of Christian doctrine question that you might have, but as you look at the practices of their life, it's clear that it's, it's leading them to death and it's ruled by fear. And so if we want to live in ways that are free of fear, we are going to need some practices that lead to life. We need practices, we need works that are going to train our hearts to desire the kingdom of God above all else. We need a set of practices that can aim our desires in the right direction. Even earlier this morning, we talked about not falling into the division of us and them and two parties and this. You know, like we, we live in such a divided world right now. And it's so easy to kind of give our allegiances away to one spectrum or the other. And actually, as the people of God, we are called to kind of rise above all of that. And place our allegiance in the kingdom of God. We cannot do that if our hearts are not aimed in the right direction. And if our practices are, are feeding our hearts into this like kind of us-them division and divide. The right-left divide. Uh, all of these kind of divisions that come. Uh, we simply cannot rise above that as the people of God without properly trained hearts. We need practices. We need confession, which itself is a practice that helps aim our hearts in the right direction. So it's like, why would we do what we did this morning? We did that because even in the doing, in providing the space, it helps to move our hearts toward allegiance to the kingdom of God. There are some other practices, though, that I want to suggest this morning, uh, very briefly, that I think will help us. We need practices like the Christian rhythms. Um, You know, your life is organized around rhythms, whether you would admit that or not, whether you're type A or not, whether you would be one who says, I like structure or not. Your life is organized around particular rhythms. This is true for all of us. We are habitual people. Uh, We simply cannot help but organize our lives around particular rhythms. And actually, these rhythms are helping to aim the desires of our hearts. They're they're helping to form us and shape us into a particular kind of people. Uh, And so if we want to be formed as a uniquely Christian people, then we need to make sure that we are participating in and practicing particularly Christian rhythms. You with me? Uh, In other words, a big help in aiming our hearts to desire the kingdom of God is to make Christian rhythms the centering rhythm of our life. Uh, one of our defining marks, another one of our, as a our community, is to tell the story of Jesus through our weekly gatherings and through our annual cycles. Uh, so each week, we have these sort of micro and these macro rhythms that are helping us to live into the truth of who God is, of who we are, and what God is doing in the world. And I have a confession to make this morning. The truth is, I have to participate in these rhythms. You are probably a better Christian than I am. uh, But I have to come to church on a regular basis. Because it helps me. Uh, I, I need the, I need the, I need the chance to sing and praise God I need space to pray and admit that I haven't always done a very good job. I need to be assured that, thanks be to God, he has, been, he has forgiven me and His Spirit lives inside of me and that He is working to bring out all that is good in me. I need those reminders. If I didn't have that every seven days, I would be a mess. <laughs> and I just, I need that. I need these kinds of rhythms in my life because there are so many things going on in my life that tell me that I am the center of the universe, that I need to come to church uh, every seven days and be reminded that I'm not the one sitting on the throne, you know? Because when I turn on the TV, my Apple TV caters everything to me and how I want it, down to what, how the apps are arranged on the screen. I can do that all by myself. When I have my phone, I can listen to my music, whatever I want. Everything, everything, everything is directed toward me. In other words, there are liturgies every day that are telling me, you are the center of the universe, Andy. To which I say, hey, thank you very much. I'm rather, well. Wow, that's very nice of you. And then I come to church and I'm reminded that there is the king of the universe, the creator of all that is. He is the one sitting on the throne. It helps me. I need these kind of weekly rhythms because I I need the rhythm of Lent. I need 40 days leading up to Easter to just be reminded that I don't always do everything right. That I'm not always just just nailing, thing, nailing this thing called life, right? I, I, and then I need, I need tide, the seven weeks of Easter to celebrate new resurrection life where I've spent some time lamenting my brokenness before God. I'm going to spend more time celebrating the forgiveness of, of God in my life and the, the formation of a community and all the reasons we have to rejoice for God is good. I need these rhythms, and I'd be willing to bet that you do too. There is value, in other words, in prioritizing our gatherings and participating in these rhythms. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear this as much more genuine than I want you to be here so we can count you. (laughs) Right? But I want you to hear That there's value in what happens on a Sunday morning as it forms us and shapes us as the people of God. In fact, I've come to see church a little bit this way. That church is a little bit like the waxing on and the waxing off. That sometimes it can feel a little bit pointless and you're not sure. And it's like you kind of go there and you're like, well, that liturgy wasn't really on fire. (laughs) But if you have this regular pattern of gathering and worshiping and confessing and praising and waxing on and waxing off and painting the fence and painting the house and sanding the deck and you do all of these things over and over and over again that pretty soon you'll find that when you come into a real difficult time, you'll respond with Christ-likeness. When you need to forgive, you'll respond with likeness that there's something being formed in you over time through the habits of gathering together as the people of God. Are you with me? James K.A. Smith, again, says this. He says, the church that is the body of Christ is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. He goes on to say, Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. (laughs) That's pretty good. And so the first practice that we need is actually a whole multitude of practices that are found in participating in Christian rhythms. The second practice we absolutely need is the practice of communion. Of communion. I could preach a whole sermon on communion and probably someday should. But I believe this about the, about the sacrament of communion. I believe that the spirit of God is present as each one of us comes to the table. I believe that all who are hungry for God are welcome to come and feast at the table of the Lord and to receive something tangible here. That this is the place where we gather in unity as people who are hungry for God and that he is faithful to meet us here. And I believe that. I hope that you do too. But I wanna tell you why I believe that. I will never forget almost exactly one year ago. I was in a lot of pain from things that had gone on in my life. And I was at a conference, a church conference, that's what pastors do. I was at a churchy conference And at this conference, communion was being served. Now, I usually, week to week, am on the giving side of communion. Or I have the opportunity, the privilege, as a pastor, to look each one of you in the eye and say, this is the body of Christ that has been broken for you, and it is the blood of Christ that has been shed for you. And oftentimes, I want to add to that you are forgiven, and you are loved. It's an opportunity for me to each week say to each of you as your pastor that you are forgiven, that you are loved by God. But at this conference, I had the opportunity to be served communion. And as I said, I was in a season of my life where I was in a lot of pain. I needed healing. And as I approached the table, a friend of mine was there Giving the elements. And so he looked at me in the eye, called me by name, said, Andy, this is the body of Christ that has been broken for you, and the blood of Christ that has been shed for you. And he that day did add the words, You are forgiven and you are loved. That day I came to the table hurting and broken. I left the table with tears in my eyes and a little more healed for the Lord met me there at the point of my need. I've come to a place where I believe that my job as a preacher and as a pastor is to share God's word in such a way that it ushers us all together to the table of our Lord. To me, it wouldn't be church if we didn't come to receive and to take in the very life of Christ. I sometimes tell people, well, sometimes people say, do you have any altar calls in your church? And I said, well, yes, we do. 52 times a year we call people to the altar. Well, that's great. How many people raise their hand in salvation and how many tears are shed at the altars? And I say, oh, I think we might be thinking differently. What I mean is that each week we come to the table and we meet Jesus there, and he meets us there. I don't know what communion is to you. It might be a snack in church. Uh, It's not a very good snack, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're just looking for a snack, it's probably not a very good one. For I am fed at the table far more than a snack could ever feed me. And I'm fed in different ways that I have become utterly convinced that the table of our Lord is an essential practice of the gathered people of God to meet Christ here. One of the other practices I want to mention is, at least in our tradition, not something that we do weekly, but that is the, the practice of baptism. Baptism is a tangible embodiment of joining Christ in His death so that we might also join him in his resurrection. And while we are baptized once, what we get to do as the people of God is to see people baptized. And I think that baptism itself, if you are the one being baptized or if you are bearing witness to the baptism, it is equally powerful for reminding us of the new life that we have in Christ, that in him we are new creations. It's an identity forming event that forms us now as the people of God and solidifies our identity in Christ. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate and to be a part of. And around here we try to do, we do baptisms as often as needed. If you haven't been baptized and you want to, we will pull out the baptistry next week and do it. But we for sure try to do it at least once a year so that we get to witness the beauty of new life in Christ through the sacrament of baptism. My message today is simple. I I want you to hear that we can't think or believe our way to holiness. We need practice. We need to participate in things that are forming us as the people of God. And central to that are the sacraments of baptism and communion, but also participating in the rhythms of the Christian life. In other words... Living the Christian life is not about believing the right thing. It's about practicing our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let me uh, lead us to the table today, and then I'll provide some instructions. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to see you in this common bread and in our common lives. In our hunger, in our fullness, in our despair, and in our hope, in our worship, and in our work. But would you feed us also with bread that is unseen. Open our hearts, Lord, and fill our cups to overflowing. Prepare your table of blessing even in the presence of our enemies. Drench us with compassion for the poor. Make us thirsty for justice and liberation for the oppressed. Pour for us the cup of heaven. So you are invited to come to the table of our Lord, you who are longing to see God's face, you who are weary from the world, you who have fed on the bread of sorrow, you who have quenched your thirst with tears, come, for the table is ready, for these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.